Welcome to the University Elite Mental Health Podcast, where your host, Dr. Hans Watson, helps you to learn the why behind mental health issues that you or someone you love may be facing. Dr. Watson is a nationally renowned psychiatrist who is also an expert in psychotherapy, a war-proven leader of the U.S. military, and the only person we know to be an expert in psychiatry, psychodynamics, diet, leadership, trauma, addiction, marriage, education, and more. That's why he was the expert that was flown in to the other side of the country to train the therapists treating the victims and their families after the recent mass shootings you heard about in Florida. We are excited to help you to understand the why behind some real life situations. And now, your host, Dr. Hans Watson Dio. Hey everybody, welcome back. Uh, This is Doc Watson coming to you again with another podcast and answering one of the questions that I get and uh, it's actually a pretty frequent question and people people want to know about physical intimacy. Um, There's a lot of questions about intimacy, about pornography, uh, about a lot of these things and and while we go into deeper depth in this in our uh, online seminar that we have in our content section in the marriage and the uh, couples communication uh, seminar there. Uh, today we're going to answer some of the questions that people have. And so one of the big ones that uh, that is repeated in different words is asking, you know, what is the psychology behind physical intimacy or sex? So today, um, heads up, the, the, this will be some adult uh, topics. And um, we're obviously going to stay very professional and and whatnot, but there will be some uh, details and uh, that could be considered graphic by many. And so please uh, realize this is a, a uh, medical and psychological discussion about sex. And so it probably is, is a good one to uh, make sure that it, there are adults or responsible people in the room. Um, we'll try to make it as family friendly as possible, but that is a, a warning to anybody out there. Uh, right. Once again, we have Jerem here who, who is with us and we're going to be um, answering the question. So that first question of, of uh, what is the psychology behind sex? And so uh, to begin, we should, uh, we should uh, talk about, you know, Jerem, what, what would you say are the popular um, impressions, maybe two or three impressions, or if you have any or you don't, no big deal, um, with how people... Uh, conceptualize sex and, and what it is? Oh, I'm not sure about the general public, but uh, one thing that for me um, was, was a difference in perception is um, before I was married, I thought that it was purely a physical thing. And then when I had sex, it was amazing how how emotionally attached that was and how how much more of a emotional connection it was than simply physical and so that that's a perception that i think changed for me when i discovered what it was really all about i don't know if that's a a general perception for other people that it's like oh it's just physical i don't know that's extremely astute um, you're going to see, and I want to write down a note here so we, we cover something. You just sparked my memory in there. Okay. Uh, uh, 
Okay. Um, you're welcome, everybody out there that got to watch me write down my, uh, <laughs> my my note to take there. So, so thanks for bearing with us. This is real life. Not a, this is not scripted. Um, so you you bring up a very good point. Uh, many people simply say, "Oh, it was the physical. It was the physical." Mm -hmm. uh, we actually have a special kind of an MRI that teaches us whether it's physical or not. Hmm. Um, there's parts of the brain that deal with different things. And we see that um, one of the, an MRI is a machine, first of all. I shouldn't just assume everybody has med school under their belt and knows the difference between an MRI and a CT machine. Right. Uh, so and a CT scanner is the equivalent of an X-ray machine that takes a whole bunch of X-rays going down and paints a picture, a 3D picture, if you will, of what's going on in your body using tons of x-rays okay these are really good at taking pictures of hard things like bones and and uh well bones are the excellent one they're just really good at looking at bones cts are good at other things like if you have an active bleed in your brain they capture a lot of that because there's a lot of iron in our blood so so things like that but what about all the soft tissues our body is made up of tons of soft tissues muscles ligaments nerves uh, vessels, all these things. Well, we actually have something called an MRI, a magnetic resonance imaging. And this is excellent at taking, it doesn't use uh, radiation like an x-ray does. It uses magnets. And if you, if you want to look at how that works, there's a whole physics class on how that works. So I'll let anybody who wants to do the physics go to that area. This today won't be that. But what it does is it takes pictures of the soft tissue, your brain, all the neurons and the nerves that make up your brain. That's that. Well, they have done a great job. Uh, the scientists have done a great job. They actually invented one called a functional MRI. And this is one that shows us when something's actually working. It, it will light up when it's working. So you can see if you're lifting with your bicep muscle, when they take an MRI of your bicep, you would actually see that lighting up. It's working at that moment. Whereas if the muscle is relaxed, it wouldn't be lit up because it's not working. Hmm. It works for your brain too. We can see which parts of your brain are working at that moment and which parts aren't. And so they've done some studies on intimacy and sex and found that there are certain parts of our brain that light up and they're the reward center. And the reward center, we noticed it, if it's a, well, there's a big step, I'll, I'll remind you a little. If it is purely physical, then we would see the reward centers go off and a huge spike of dopamine would come out when you got the physical um, uh, response or the physical uh, satisfaction. We'd see these giant dopamine spikes and two parts of the brain, one called the nucleus accumbens, which causes us to feel good. And then the second one called the ventral tegmental area, which makes us desire that feel good more often. And that, we're oversimplifying just a little, but it's still very scientifically accurate. And so we would see these light up like crazy because they're getting fed dopamine, the feel good hormone, one of them. And, and so what did we see? We saw that when people do sex, that these two areas light up the same way that cocaine causes it light up, same way that mm. sugary and salty foods cause it to light up, the same way when you overcome something hard, win a championship, uh, you know, stop doing a habit that was really hard for you, just accomplish something. It also lights up in all of these. Uh, when people finish working out, oftentimes they'll get a small lift of that. That's called the runner's high. So we okay. see this. So the question is, what if it's physical, 
when we're talking about sex, what is the one way that you could get the most physical satisfaction from a sexual encounter? And a lot of people haven't thought of it this way. Of course, I'm a scientist by nature, and so I've thought of it this way, trying to understand what's behind this. So when I'm um, doing sex therapy for, for some of my patients and, and my couples, and so as you're doing that, you look at it, there is no way to get more physical satisfaction or response than through masturbation. Hmm. Nobody can be more responsive to things that work physically or don't work physically than the person living in that body. And so right. you look at it. And so if it is a physical thing, sex, then the question would be, which is going to have a bigger dopamine release, masturbation or a sexual encounter with, with somebody that you, a loved one or a, a trusted individual, which one is going to have a bigger dopamine release if it's all physical? And the simple answer would be masturbation would because nobody can be more responsive and, and you could have a longer and stronger orgasm by being in control yourself than, than anybody else. Right. However, what did we learn on the functional MRI? The functional MRI shows the dopamine release is much smaller and short-lived through masturbation than it is through an encounter with a loved one, a trusted individual. Hmm. And so that right there teaches us very fundamentals of sex. And that is, this is a psychological more than physical act. You can't eliminate, there is still, but we see massively more activation of those dopamine centers, the ventral tegmental area and the nucleus accumbens, when somebody engages in a healthy sexual relationship with somebody else uh -huh. than through masturbation. And so okay. that proves to us, this is hugely psychological. And I'll even go as high as saying in females, it's probably somewhere close to 98% psychological and 2% physiological or physical. Really? In males, it's probably similar. Wow. And so that is something that many people don't realize is, is wow, this is not what I thought it was, which was purely a physical act. Now, there is some physical action. Otherwise, there would be no neuronal stimulation as, as the genitalia are, are um, stimulated and, and it sends that, uh, that response up the neuro, nervous system and, and all that type of thing. Um, we could even get into the parasympathetic causes an erection in the male or the clitoris, and the, and the sympathetic is, is what happens during the orgasm. All that's fine, but that's, that's physical is a tiny part. It really doesn't take much to cause an erection in either the clitoral tissue or the penile tissue. So that's just not a huge part. It is psychological. So that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time is on that psychological point. Great. And so what the question that that leads to is, what is the psychology behind sex? Now, many people have many wild beliefs and ideas about what it is. But here's what it really is. You're about to get what it really is. And realizing I've studied, um, because I've studied psychoanalysis, 
I've studied sex like uh, very in depth. Freud was big into understanding the libidinal drive, he calls it. Hmm. And that has benefited me very greatly in couples therapy that I do, as well as formal sex therapy that I do with people. And so uh, heads up in case case, uh, you're wondering, yes, I am uh, an expert in sex therapy. We could do we could do that. That's fine. But the psychology is very interesting. And it's not the same for men and women. I know, Jerem, you're surprised. <laughs> men and women are different. What? <laughs> no. So, so the, the, the difference is, so which should we start with, men or women, when we're discussing the psychology of intimacy? Um, well, we're men, so. But, well, Ladies first. I don't know. Okay, ladies before know. gentlemen. I right. it was a 50-50 deal. Could have picked either because we're going to talk about both. All right, right. for men, uh, sex represents for a man uh, a, a masculine person. We'll say um, uh, because there are some. Uh, the vast majority fit into the masculine or the feminine. There are some individuals who have more masculine traits and they tend to be more successful in business. and And the studies have shown this. This is not. Uh, just some opinion of mine that this is based on studies. And so understanding when we say men, we're talking about masculine individuals and that can be born biologically female or male. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get into that, the whole pol- politics about gender and that type of thing. No, this is, this is just the psychology of people with masculine traits or psychology of people with feminine traits. And, okay. and I'll leave the rest alone. So, uh, and I'm going to, for simplicity's sake, I'm just going to say men and women, realizing that there are some women with masculine traits and there's some men with feminine traits. So, so no offense intended for anybody. But as we look at this, if an, a man, when they come in and they study, or excuse me, when we are looking at what the psychology is behind intimacy for men, this is broken down, and in its simplest form, you could say it is the opportunity for that man to be validated as a man, as that knight in shining armor, somebody that is desirable because of the, the way that they can provide and protect. Right. So as you look at that, um, you will actually be able to see men who have a good sex life tend to be very confident in their ability to provide and protect. That doesn't mean they have, they have a job that every other man would be, be uh, considered to be a great provider, but the ones who matter to them think that. Right. And so uh, most people don't realize that is if you have a man with a low self-esteem, one of the ways you can help them is helping them feel like they're a good provider and a good protector. And that is going to result in a lot of, of um, improvements. In fact, in many of, uh, it's not a rare thing. I have helped many men who struggle with erectile dysfunction when we worked on their ability to become better providers and better protectors. For some reason, their erectile dysfunction either completely resolved or much improved. Right, right. Isn't that a curious thing? For some of these men, it was coming, uh, coming to grips with and overcoming a trauma. For others, it was 
uh, getting a better job that they knew, meeting their real potential. Uh, stop being such a um, lazy person at home. Uh, it was one of my patients told me. I quit being lazy and suddenly I could function again. I knew better. That was right. one of the things we talked about. So can you see how for men, this is very validating. In fact, one of the ways that, that you can look at the psychology behind something is look at the movies. The movies always have some of the best psychological consultants for them. Well, the good ones do. And so you look at it, pornography. If a pornography that's written for a man, what do we see the male's role? They're finally in control. They're finally a dominant force that could provide and protect. And so as we see that, many men who are too fragile to look at themselves in the mirror, what porn do they prefer? It's actually one where they get to be so in control of something in their life to where we see them ejaculate onto a woman to where their view of being in control is finally putting somebody else down. And so we'll see the, the, the orgasm isn't something that's a loving, mutual thing. No, they're, they're ejaculating onto another person's face. Hmm. That's quite a demeaning thing, but it shows the psychology of people who are not confident in their ability to provide and to protect to where the only way they can feel just some imitation of that would be to control that woman. Whereas mm -hmm. we find that most people, at least I find, I say we as if you're doing psychotherapy. Jeremy is not a mental health <laughs> provider for everyone out there. He's, he does my web, web design for me. Um, what we what I found in people who are struggling with their identity as a man, they tend to be the ones that seek pornography where the man is dominant. This is all about them establishing dominance. They're going to ejaculate onto somebody else's face. You know that I'm in charge, right. and it's a cheap imitation of I'm confident enough that I could be vulnerable with a lady and they still know that even though I'm showing vulnerability, I am a provider and a protector. You get into it to where the people are so fragile that they are absolutely, these males are so fragile that they're absolutely ready to fall apart and their life is nothing but a facade of somebody who has it confidently together. What pornography are they watching? They're watching ones where they're abusing the female. Hmm. Can you see how this is a psychologically powerful action? And it's the more fragile you are, the more in charge to the point that you're taking advantage of somebody else. Because you're, when we get deep down to the psychodynamics, you feel so taken advantage and helpless in your life. Pornography might be the only place you actually get to feel in control, even though it's only a counterfeit for just a little while. Interesting. And I've also heard it, the other side of the pendulum, that um, a lot of the, the men who are into um, the, the femdom, the feminine dominance, being dominated, are generally very powerful people in, in their real lives who never get to just let go of control. It's like they are 100% on all the time in charge of everything. And they never get to just 
have a break and let somebody else take charge. Is that true or? It's not held true. I can't say for sure. It's not held true in my practice. Okay. Um, the, the patients who I've worked with that, that enjoyed that type of a thing, yes, they had an area where they were very dominant. Maybe they were a CEO of a company. Right. But their home life was falling apart outside of those employees who had to, because they needed to keep their job, show them that they, they were going to give them the respect of somebody that's a provider and a protector. They had nobody that really felt that way for them. And so, they, you know, many people looked at it and said, look at this. They're a powerful CEO. But when you got down to it and they got into a safe place, like in therapy with me, was not the case. That was a facade, and they actually felt terribly out of control and inadequate as a father, as a provider. And provider doesn't mean I brought a lot of money. It means I'm providing for the needs of my family. Right. Money is only one type of need. Emotional, right. all these other ways are also. So when we're doing this, don't confuse provider with breadwinner. That's right. only one part of provider. Okay. And so uh, this is a good point for us to, to explain something. Um, and we've kind of hinted on it. Anytime you want to understand movies, you just have to look at the, the movie to see what demographic they're looking at. And we're, we're doing a podcast on that one coming up. But I've shown you here, you can look at the psychology of who they're targeting by what the undertone of the movie is. And so that's a little sneak peek for one of the one of the upcoming podcasts we have coming on, on what the movies, uh, what's the psychology behind movies and how they write them. So, right. um, but uh, now we've, we've given men some attention. Let's give females some attention. Women, what would pornography for women represent? So we'll get to that. But first, let's talk about the psychology so you can understand it. For women, intimacy and sex does not represent provider or you know it doesn't represent being a provider and it does not represent um uh being accepted as uh, as that uh, um protector as i can't believe i struggled for protector that hard but there you go this is live guys this is real right. so um instead for females what sex represents is it represents for them the most vulnerable way they can be. When I, I personally have, have termed it, when a female allows her body to be penetrated, she is allowing somebody to touch her soul. There is no more vulnerable way to be or no more vulnerable situation than intimacy and penetration for a female. And uh, I'll give you an example of why. You can go and see and experience the worst traumas in the world, horrific things in war or horrific deaths and that type of thing. What percentage of the people will actually get PTSD off of that? Any guesses? No idea. It's 30 to 50% of the people that experience, think of the worst traumas you can think of, in war uh -huh. or, or in regular life, 30 to 50% will get PTSD. Okay. The rest won't. Right. If there is rape, 
and it involves penetration, over 75% will experience PTSD. Wow. It's because this is, to be penetrated is a such a vulnerable position. It's such a vulnerable act that this is a, a female who allows a male to, or, or, or another female, excuse me, a female who allows themselves to be penetrated they are actually allowing and showing the greatest level of trust that can happen. Now, some people will say, what about the hookup, the hookup in college? Yeah, there have been studies that followed people who did the hookup in college, long-term studies. It is incredibly damaging. And the reason behind that is these are individuals who at times are even trying to say, I'm going to trust you as somebody that could be a protector and a, and a provider here. You're going to provide some of what I need in life. You're going to be a protector and help protect me. And what happens if that's just a hookup? Their word is, you're not, even though you, you showed that vulnerability, you're not worth it to me to even be somebody that will protect and provide for you the things you need. Whereas when they do, so, so one of the big ones that's hard for guys, and we talk about this a lot in our, in our uh, marriage uh, course that we have on there, guys, what is one of the biggest needs that every female has that we're extremely uncomfortable with? Emotional vulnerability. Mm. They want to hear about your feelings. Yeah. And for a female, if that guy is then saying, I need to be validated, I need to be validated as the man, the knight in shining armor, well, then what does the woman need to be validated as? Somebody that she can trust, that you're somebody she can trust as able to be vulnerable with. Right. And the biggest way you can demonstrate your vulnerability to a woman as a man, to demonstrate that to a woman, is to show some vulnerability yourself. When's right. the last time a guy came home and said, my boss yelled at me today. And you talk about bringing up one of my biggest fears. You know, my biggest fear is being an outright failure. And when he pointed out what I did wrong, it made me furious. So mad because I feared that it was coming true, that I'm a failure to the point that I reacted with anger to hold off that emotion. Now that's some psychodynamic stuff we're bringing out there. Right. You can see if you're not talking about your feelings, are you really going to show your wife or, or, or that lady unconsciously that you're somebody that can be trusted with vulnerability? Right. And so you can see now sex for a female represents safety in being vulnerable with this person. And so what do we see? We actually see married people who in a safe place experience that vulnerability with each other, they have more, more often and more adventurous sex than anybody who thinks, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do this like the, the pornography shows and take charge. And no, it's just the opposite. And so right. what we see is a huge change once we start understanding the psychology of sex. So a guy that says, I need more sex in my marriage, guess what he needs to do? He needs to show vulnerability. And right. if his wife is unable to 
show vulnerability because maybe there's a trauma there. Guess what that wife needs to do? Get into therapy to learn when it's safe to be vulnerable. Mm. You can see how sex therapy, when it's good sex therapy, is much more than do this physical act and this physical act and this physical act. It's actually a psychodynamic evaluation of where they're coming from and then therapy to work with each individual to help them to get to a point that they feel safe being vulnerable with each other, that they can now become a provider or that they can now become vulnerable enough to be penetrated. You can just see how uh, this is so much more psychological than it is. And there's a lot of bad sex therapy out there where they just say, Go home and masturbate and do this and this and this. And those may be appropriate for certain individuals in certain times. The vast majority, though, there's a lot of psychology before that that step. So I've dropped a lot there, Jerem. Where, where, where are you at right now? Well, I, I'm wondering if something that, that I was thinking about while you were talking about the man being vulnerable parallels what, what you actually said because you kind of went down a different path than what what came into my mind, but one of the things that's really hard for me is to, um, w- when my wife is being vulnerable and expressing something that's upsetting to her, and I think this is hard for a lot of men, is to not be the fix-it guy, just to let her be vulnerable. And my wife has told me before, she's like, I don't want to hear your reply. I don't want your opinion. I don't want you to fix it. I just want to hug. Why can't you just hold me? Why can't you just hug me? And and that's very intimate and important to her. And to me is just like, oh, you're telling me these things and I have the answer to it. I want to solve the problem. I want to be that knight in shining armor, but she just wants me to recognize her and just give her a hug and be like, it's going to be okay. I don't know how. I, I'm not going to make it okay, but I'm just going to tell you this floaty in the clouds. It's going to be okay. And that means more to her than my instincts So fix it. You bring up a really good point. We talk about that pretty in depth in, in, that, in our marriage seminar we're, we're referring to over and over. Um, and, and yes, in case, you're, in case you're getting this the week it came out, that marriage seminar is still in production. It's not quite out, but it's on its way. But the, um, the big thing there is you've described something. Your wife is telling you at that moment she needs you to provide something oh. one way. And you're saying, but I know a way that would cause me to feel like a provider. I would right. feel like a provider. And ah. she's saying, but that's not what I need you to provide right now. So you're frustrated because she's thwarting your ability to provide. And that's what you want to do is be there to provide, which is a good sentiment. But until you have a psychotherapist who's worth their worth their weight, point that out to you, then you go, oh, wait a minute. She's still allowing me to provide just by saying to her, I love you and you are still wonderful. And you don't even have to say it's going to be okay. They just want that hug and to tell them they're wonderful. And sometimes it's not going to be okay. But even if it's not, I'm here with you. Notice right. how that suddenly they're being provided for. Whereas right now, what you're doing is you're being a normal man and you're saying, but I can provide. Don't stop my, this is me. I want to provide. I love you so much. So kind of an exciting thing. Now that you bring that up, many people out there are probably going to go, holy crap, he's right. Right. Holy, I was trying to provide. That's why I hated it so much is because you're stopping me from, but then you start to realize, 
wait, it's just as valuable if I provide this, I'm doing that. And maybe one day she's going to come back and say, oh, by the way, how would you fix this thing? And right. she'll only do that when you provide what she needs at that time. And so yeah, the females out there, this is your job also. You, you have to use blunt things. We talk about this. You can't just expect them to know the intuition that you needed a hug. No, literally, you have to say it out loud. I don't need you to fix it. I just need a hug. Okay. Yep. And that helps tremendously when she, when she verbalizes that. And when she doesn't, it often turns into a fight because my way of fixing it is, oh, well, if you did this this way, and now she hears criticism, not helpful um, yeah. guidance like, oh, I know how to do that better. It's you're not good enough. And then that turns into a fight where we don't want to hug each other, or at least I don't want to hug because I feel like, oh, I'm trying to provide help here. And now I'm being accused of being um, uh, hurtful and critical and attacking you. And I'm just trying to respond yeah. my way to actually be helpful. But, um, but it rarely comes across that way. <laughs> So what you're describing there is, is you each have experienced something uh, that's very impactful. I'm glad you, you brought it up. And that is she's experiencing you're refusing to provide what I need. You're only willing to provide the thing you want to. And this right. is on the unconscious level. Whereas you're experiencing, you refuse to let me do the man's job of providing. And instead, you just want to complain at me and then not let me provide. Right. Or so you're rejecting what I'm trying to provide out of the goodness of my heart to be helpful. And that's making me feel not accepted. And so you can see how that would affect a sex life like crazy. Yeah. She's feeling not that you're not willing to hear. You're no longer safe. That's going to hurt the sex life. It's going to hurt the sex life for you because you're not appreciated as a man. And then when you, then when you, in spite of your best efforts, aren't receiving intimacy, that's a second rejection of your being a provider. And so right. it's really impactful just, just knowing this. I have many couples that they do this and suddenly their sex life starts to improve without even doing any of the, any of the formal sex therapy. Now, now um, with that being said, uh, I want to move on to our next question with a few minutes we have left. Another person asked, what is the deal with people's focus on attractive bodies and sexuality? Hmm. What's the psychology behind it, they said. Um, because shouldn't a person just be happy that they love me, even if I'm overweight? And as uh, many people know, I've already written a diet book called The Two Rule Diet, and it's coming out here shortly. Um, uh, the publisher just talked to them today, and they said, yeah, we're, we're into the last of it. It's in editing, and it'll be coming out soon. So everybody is stayed tuned with that Two Rule Diet that's coming out. But the psychology behind weight is also very interesting. And it does go back to intimacy and sexuality. What it is, is a man who can provide and protect will be the psychology of the female. They, more females will desire them. So it's only going to be the most successful females that are able to attract a male that's able to provide and protect. Okay. And so what do we see the males look like in pornography? They're strong. Right. 
and they're generally successful. You don't you don't see uh, pornography that's made for a female to where it's the plumber. Uh, well, I, maybe you do there to where it's just some. You don't see the couch potato who's right. out of shape and really doesn't have anything going on in their life yeah. as the actor in that pornography or in who's attractive in any other movies. Right. Instead, what do we see? We see an in-shape person who's showing signs of success in that masculine role of providing and protecting. You know, a stronger man is more likely to be able to defend in a time of crisis. That is, many people would believe, that's an inbred psychological part of the unconscious. And you'll see successful CEOs and businessmen are often the actor in a pornography made for women. Okay, well, then let's look at the opposite for men. For men, what do we see? We tend to see those females that have the most choices. They tend to be the ones that are attractive. They have they have in shape legs and hips. And then, you know, whereas the men had strong pecs and arms and legs, the women have in shape legs and, and, and bodies. You know, I guess we don't have to name all the body parts. Everybody can imagine what what an attractive male or female looks like. Right. But you tend to see that. And so they would have many options. And so what are we showing there? So when a female keeps herself in shape and allows a very robust and healthy sexual relationship, what message is she communicating to that male? That is, she's communicating, I have other options but I choose you as my prote my protector and provider. Mm, okay. Can you see how powerful a woman that keeps herself in shape and still chooses to have a healthy sex life, how that is? Now, let's look at that the other way. What about a woman who keeps herself in shape and doesn't have a healthy sex life with her husband? She is then sending the unconscious message I'm keeping myself in shape so I have options just in case I never I need to leave you. Right. Just in case I find a better deal out there. Right. Okay. Even though that might may not be the case, that is the unconscious message that is sent over and over and over. And that's why many of the couples I work with, it really is, they're not looking elsewhere, but that's the unconscious message they're sending. And I don't know how to untrain the brain to do that. Like it or not, if you're a female. And you are, uh, or, or there's one more option. What about the female who doesn't take the time to keep themselves in shape? Usually, they're only going to be able to attract somebody else who is not a go-getter, who doesn't have a lot going for themselves. Right. Either that or you're going to have to find yourself a doormat with very low self-esteem. And some of those people can achieve great things, but that way they'll never, they'll never expect you to get in shape so that you show them that, hey, I have other options. I still, I still choose you. What a compliment to your, your partner it is to maintain a fit body or keep yourself, eat right, whatever it takes, and still maintain a robust sex life. Same thing for males, the same thing. A male who doesn't keep themselves in shape, what message are they sending to somebody if they attracted a good girl and then fell out of shape later? Well, now that I got you, I no longer care about showing you that you're wonderful and having a situation where I can be a protector. Right. You're devaluing 
what they're bringing to the relationship. It, it, it's almost like a form of betrayal or cheating right there to come and say, here's what I have to offer. And then you get the ring around the finger and say, don't have to offer that anymore. Um, it really, and, and whether that's fair or not, I'm not here to say what's fair and what's not. I'm here to say what the psychology in the unconscious mind is saying. And so, right. so yes, it is to the unconscious mind, which is not the smart part of our brain. That's the frontal lobe that's the smart part. It is a betrayal. Right. And so unconsciously, you are betraying your partner. Like it or not, I don't, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just telling you what the psychology is. And so as we look at that, that's a powerful thing, and we should know that. And so many of my couples, it's, it's interesting how many of my couples, when they learn this, they, they stop pressuring each other to get in shape and to eat healthy, and it starts to be each individual as a way will tell their partner, I want you to know you're appreciated. I know that for you, intimacy is a big deal. I'm going to get in shape as a way of demonstrating to you just how important you are to me. Right. Isn't that a powerful state? And if you say it out loud, isn't that powerful? You're demonstrating how important they are to you. And tell me that won't endear them to then say, holy crap, well, if you're going to do that for me, do you know what I'm going to do for you? And now it becomes a it becomes a competition to see who can serve the other one more and who can right. be kinder to the other one. That's a pretty good relationship when there's a competition on to try to be kinder to them because you're so grateful to how kind they were to you. That right. tends to lead to a real happy life. Yeah. Awesome. So I hope that answers uh, why, first of all, I hope that answers why people would be attracted to um, individuals with uh, attractive feats and, and you know, what's attractive will continue to morph over time. If you look back in the, even the 1980s, as long as then, huge breasts were not all that. Right. Whereas today, guess what? Many people, huge breasts is, is extremely attractive to them. That will continue to morph. Maybe one day it will be uh, uh, back to, back to normal sized breasts. I don't know. It's uh, the, the psychology of, the psychology does not determine what is and isn't attractive. The psychology just takes what we determine as attractive and then it imprints that on there. And so maybe one day uh, what we consider obesity today will be extremely attractive. And then the way you show your, your loved one that they're, that they're wonderful is to become obese. Right. And you want to eat the opposite of the two-rule diet that I created just so you could show them you love them. Right. <laughs> I hope that's never the case because diabetes is a killer. But right, but, um, right. That that is why uh, physical attractiveness exists. That's why many times physical attractiveness does affect relationships, and there is a responsibility for for them to uh, put themselves in a position to where the things that their spouse finds attractive. And guess what? It doesn't necessarily mean they're superficial. Right. There's a lot more unconscious and psychology to it than just that. And it's, it's more of a demonstration. Instead of just superficial, oh, you want this, it's more a demonstration of I am somebody that's so attractive that I have other options and I choose you. You're that good a deal. I choose right. you. And so that's, the, that's the, the way that it really comes out psychologically. And that's why it's so important for us to take pride in uh, 
trying to meet what our what our partner finds attractive. There's right. there's a real way in that if you talk about it. Right. Well, that shows commitment to staying attractive, um, which would show commitment to the relationship, and also um, a commitment to that longevity. Yes. If your health is so poor that you're saying, hey, you get to live with the stress of knowing that you could lose me at any time, that's certainly not productive as the protective provider. That's putting the, the, um, the other person in the relationship at, at risk and, and in a vulnerable state that they're probably not asking for. And yeah, that, communicates, that communicates, you're not even important enough for me to eat healthy, to where I'm going to be in shape and I can be there for you. You're not even that important to me. Right. Tell me that's not a demoralizing thing for a partner. So you can see how where most people, and I'll be honest with you, it's really a crutch for people who are addicted to food mm -hmm. to say, dang it, in order, to, in order to show you you're more important than food, I have to actually start eating healthier. But this is many times how I get my happiness from the day is through a chemical boost to that nucleus accumbens and ventral tegmental area so I get that dopamine release. I'm not doing the things in my life, accomplishing the hard things that would make it come. Maybe you can't, maybe there's other things. So it's, it can be very hard. I'm, I'm not diminishing people who have a food addiction or people who do that, but it does send a clear message to any potential partners that you may not be a great catch. You right. may be second or third in line, whereas I always say, if you're married, your spouse is first. Uh, excuse me. Your health is first. Your spouse is second. And then your children are third and the rest of your life comes forth. So, you know, you shouldn't be putting food in front of your spouse. You shouldn't be putting kids in front of your spouse. You can, but your marriage is not going to be a healthy one. And so- right. Uh, does that clear up? Uh, I, I hope that uh, we'll, we'll leave the rest to people that want to jump in, jump in deeper because we're out of time for the um, for the uh, the uh, seminar that we have on the marriage and the communication. Um, but uh, yeah, I hope this clears up those questions I get, uh, the ones about intimacy, and gives people kind of a starting point where if this if this rang true to you, you may want to check out uh, the the seminar. We, we do marriage retreats and people really, really tend to uh, come back and report um, how productive this was for them and exactly why it was. And, and, and we, we get into this type of stuff in depth in much of my marriage, uh, marriage therapy that we do. So um, any final thoughts there, Jerem? There's just so much more to talk about. I wish we had more time. Uh, one thing that, I, that did pop into my mind that I felt was a little profound when you're talking about how our opinion of what we find attractive can change is when um, President Obama became president and Michelle Obama walked out on stage with a sleeveless dress showing off her muscular, beautiful arms. Here is a woman married to the now most powerful man in the world. And I think arms became. Uh, toned arm suddenly became attractive to people all over the place because perhaps they were associated with, oh, here is what the most powerful man in the world has offered to him. Now arms are really important to all these people. Is that 
Definitely, definitely. That that is right in line with the psychology I see, and it doesn't hurt that that uh, First Lady Obama was an attractive individual. Yeah. And so, yes, you're right, but yes, it does not hurt when they start seeing the most powerful woman in the world, arguably, right, as having this this attractive feature. No question, especially for the female psyche, that that suddenly would be something they say. I bet that's attractive. Look at that. She has those arms. Unconsciously, would me having those arms attract a powerful man that can provide a good life for me too? Right. You're right in line. You're starting to think about the psychology. So with that, <laughs> we'll close out. And once again, guys, there's a lot of content on uh, universityelite.com. A lot of it's free on there. So go on to that online content section, look it up, and uh, keep the questions coming. If you have more questions, Ask the Doc. It's right on the front page of universityelite.com. And uh, this is the kind of kind of stuff that we have going on, and we love sharing it. So keep your questions coming. And uh, until then, bye for now, and you guys be well.